pre-recorded. This is the Red Ticket Blues Podcast. I am Brian Buckley. This is being recorded on February 17th to hit the internets. On February 18th, you can always listen to the show on iTunes, TuneIn Radio, Stitcher, YouTube, and follow me on Twitter at BrianBuck13 and at Red Ticket Blues to get your attention at... Uh, so it is another edition, a weekly edition of the Thursday Talk, where we have a sports media guest. And this week, I was lucky enough to have a nice conversation with Mike Vaccaro, who's the lead sports columnist for the New York Post. And we got into a bunch of topics, uh, including the Knicks trade deadline and going forward. What, how are they going to make that team better again? Uh, a little about Mike himself, how he got to be a sports columnist of the New York Post. There is a journey to get there. We get into a little football going forward, and to brighten everyone's day up, we talk about the warmth, the wonderfulness of the game of baseball. So, with all that being said, let's listen to Mike Vaccaro of the New York Post. We welcome in the lead sports columnist for the New York Post and author of the books Emperors and Idiots, 1941, The Greatest Year in Sports, and The First Fall Classic, and that is Mike Vaccaro. Mike, welcome to the Red Ticket Blues podcast. Great to be here, Brian. Thanks for having me on. Oh, no problem. Thank you for being here. So let's let's jump right into the most pressing news in New York sports right now. The second half of the NBA season starts later this week. You recently wrote about this. It's not only what happens on the floor for the Knicks, but off the court with Phil Jackson. What does he specifically need to do for this franchise going forward? And does it start tomorrow, being Thursday, the trade deadline? Well, yeah, I mean, ideally it would because the uh, you know, the, the, the biggest obstacle to the Knicks right now is they don't have enough good players. And unfortunately, that's kind of what they're running into for the deadline. They don't have enough good players, which, you know, also known as don't have enough assets to try and turn them into good players. So um, that, that, that's going to be certainly a challenge for Phil. Um, all all the, the, the secondary challenge uh, beyond getting good players is finding the right guy to coach these players. Um, he seems to have a lot of confidence in Kurt Rambis, and that makes him a party of one, uh, probably throughout basketball. Um, you know, one of the classic dilemmas when you have Phil Jackson in this position as, as Knicks do is that he's in charge, and so therefore he gets to, to uh, set his own agendas. And one of the agendas, whether he likes to say the words or not, is he wants a guy who's familiar and comfortable playing the triangle. And unfortunately, the one guy who's been successful in coaching that is Phil Jackson. And you can go beyond that and say Phil Jackson was successful doing that because he had two of the four or five best players of all time as his point men in the, uh, in the triangle offense, both with Kobe Bryant in L.A. and Michael Jordan in, uh, in Chicago. So, uh, you know, personally, I've, I've called for Tom Thibodeau. I know a lot of people have. I think he seems to be the popular choice. And it makes sense that he is because he's clearly far and away the best coach available right now. And, look, I mean, there's a salary cap in the NBA, but there's no salary cap for coaches. And to me, I mean, there's no excuse why the Knicks, the New York Knicks, uh, can't find a coach, the best coach available, pay him what he's worth, and let him get to work. And the problem with that, and the one impediment standing in the way in that is that, uh, well, two, I guess. One, Thibodeau and Jackson don't have a relationship. And two, they don't, uh, you know, Thibodeau is not, is not a triangle guy. And that's going to be a real problem, I think. Yeah, you sort of stole the question from me. I was going to say, uh, you know, all, you hear all Nick fans, you hear everyone around saying Tom Thibodeau, Tom Thibodeau, Tom Thibodeau, and he's expressed interest that he would come, he'd crawl there. Um, do you have any real, you know, do you believe that he'll be there next year because of those, the, the, the you know, the intricacies you just laid out, that there is no relationship? Do you think there's a chance that he'll actually be the coach next year? There's a chance because, look, I mean, I'm not saying that uh, that this will happen. But certainly there's, 
there's one person that Phil Jackson does answer to. And if James Dolan says, I want Tom Thibodeau as my coach, well, this is going to be the coach. Now, that might mean that Phil Jackson isn't the general manager for very much longer after that. But, you know, as long as, as, long as there is that, you know, Jackson has a lot of power. It's not absolute because he did the answer to the owner. So that said, uh, I, I do think that like, I, it's pretty clear. People I've talked to know Thibodeau well. Other people have had the same conversation with other, with other friends of Thibodeau's. He would really like the next job. He really had a very good experience as Jeff Van Gundy's assistant coach. Uh, some people dismiss the New York basketball thing. He embraces it. He wants to be a part of it. Uh, but he won't, he won't wait forever. And certainly, you know, he, he, the, 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 his services will be in demand uh, in the coming weeks and months. I mean, if the Nets don't offer him, somebody will at the end of the season. And so he won't wait for the Knicks forever, and he won't be available forever. He won't be around forever. Right. But certainly right now you would think that that's his first choice. And if you're the Knicks, I mean, you know, unless you're Phil Jackson and you're, pretty, and, and, and you're as stubborn as your reputation, uh, that should be their first choice as well. You, you just mentioned the owner, uh, and he's a name that we hear all the time, rarely seen, rarely heard. Uh, in November of 2013, you were able to sit down with the lead singer of J.D. in the straight shot, um, that being the CEO of Cablevision and owner of Knicks and Rangers, James Dolan. How'd you get FaceTime with this notoriously quiet figure? Yeah, I guess I was just stepping and warm down. I mean, it had been a, a couple of years in the, uh, in the, uh, in the making. Uh, trying to reach out to him, trying to reach out to, to, to his close associates at the Garden, uh, knowing it was a long shot because he doesn't grant a lot of interviews. Uh, and, uh, you know, I, I, we actually had, had, had a lunch a few months beforehand where I guess we kind of felt each other out to see if, uh, if it would be something that I would be willing to do, but also something, obviously, more importantly, that he'd be willing to do. And a couple months later, I got a call and said, I'd like to sit down with you for an hour. Wow. So, you know, it's, uh, you know, it, 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 it's certainly a lesson that I give to aspiring journalists that, uh, you have to be persistent in something else in this business. You have to be resilient. You have to understand that uh, for every you know 200 no's you get, the yes is the one that matters, whether that's looking for a job or looking for an interview. And that's the uh, that was how I got James Dolan to sit down with me. And uh, you know it was uh, it was the first time he did that in seven years. I thought he gave some interesting answers. And I think if you look at some of those answers he gave, certainly with uh, three years of hindsight now. Uh, some of those answers are pretty interesting. Yes, they, they absolutely are. We go back and read that again, November 2013. All right, before before you were doing sit-downs with owners, you, you had to start somewhere. So, Mike, when did you start envisioning yourself as a sports writer? Well, it's going to sound really corny, Brian, but my father used to work in the city. I grew up on Long Island in West Hempstead, and uh, he would he, he would buy the Daily News on his way into into work, so I didn't really saw that because he left the paper in the in the office. But he would buy the Post, which was an afternoon paper at the time, on his way home. And we had Newsday delivered and the Long Island Press until that paper folded. So I grew up around newspapers. I specifically grew up around the Post because it was the paper my father would literally hand to me when he walked in the door. So I had to kid Steve Serby about that. He really loves when they tell him how much younger I must be than him. Uh, but that's really how I got my first taste of newspapers and. And, you know, the, 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 the idea that, uh, you know, if you're a sports fan, uh, certainly in those days, the, the game didn't seem real until you read about it the next day's paper. I don't know if people still feel that way, but I, I like to think that at least some people do. Um, and that's certainly how I got my first taste of it, and that's what I kind of realized that's what I wanted to do. Uh, the very first baseball game my father ever took me to, June 29, 1974, I was seven years old, and he turned and pointed to the press box and he explained to me what the people behind the glass of the press box did. And he said that they write for a living, they write about baseball for a living. And it just it occurred to me some kind of miracle that you could actually make a living watching baseball games. And uh, so, you know, all, all these seeds are planted, and I went to St. Bonaventure and studied journalism there. And 
my first job was covering high schools and covering St. Bonaventure basketball for the OEN Times Herald, which had a circulation of about 73. Uh, actually, more like 15,000. It was a very good small paper. It was a great place to start. Um, and actually, even before that, you know, in the summers of my, of my college years, I would work at these weeklies on Long Island, the Floral Pack Kissbacks and the Glen Glen Grove Guardian. And, you know, I'm probably one of the, I'm probably one of the last people who ever actually used, uh, worked in newspapers where you had to use hot type. You know, you had to, yeah, you actually typed it like, like Oscar Madison and, and took the paper out of the typewriter and handed it to a printer. Uh, so that's how I got my start. And it's been, uh, a really, a really fun, fun journey it has been. I mean, I, I I've been in, I've been a professional for 25 years, going 26 years, and uh, it's been—it really has been a joyride for me. I've been very fortunate. That's great. Um, you, you mentioned a few of the places that you uh, you've worked at, and you've also worked at—you know—outside of the the Northeast area. You worked for the Northwest Arkansas Times and Kansas City Star. I got to ask you, how did your style of writing change, or did it change, from a geographical sense, moving back to the north northeast, or even just the the transition from the New York Star Ledger to to writing for the New York Post? Yeah, it's a great question, Brian. You know, I, I don't think I changed at all when I went to Northwest Arkansas Times because I I hadn't been in the business long enough to actually have anything to change from. <laughs> I think I I think I probably took a little bit of my New York sensibilities and my New York attitude with me. And I guess not surprisingly, two years into my job there, I was terminated. So I don't know if it was had to do with the fact that I was New York <laughs> or just an incompetent sports editor. But uh, um, it, it is interesting when I, uh, several years later, after I after worked a couple of years in upstate New York, uh, in, in, in Orange County, New York, not all the way upstate, but now north of the city, um, I, I, I did go to Kansas City. And I'll tell you, that was the one place where I think uh, my style really uh, kind of crystallized. Uh, I had really, really good editors. Um, I've always told writers that you know I know I, I know there's the there's the, the, the there's a the classic argument that you're supposed to always not get along with your editor, but I'll tell you what a good editor is the greatest tool you can have as a young writer, and I had several of them in Kansas City, uh, including my, I got the name of Mike Fannin, who's now the editor of the paper there, um, and you know, I was only in Kansas City for a year, but I looked at the stuff I was writing before I went to work there and the stuff I wrote coming out of there, and in the almost 20 years since. And I owe, you know, I, I owe the people there a, a, a great deal of thanks because, uh, just in a lot of ways, just in terms of the way I, the way I would approach stories, uh, remembering not to bury the lead, remembering to get to the point of my stories and my columns, uh, that was really uh, a huge benefit for a young writer. Um, and I'll tell you, it, it was interesting. I, when I left the, the, the New York Star Ledger after three and a half years for the Post, I think there were a lot of people who were surprised because, you know, I... I think I think the lines are blurrier now, but back when I made that move in 2002, uh, the Star Ledger was considered, you know, classic broadsheet. Uh, for lack of a better word, I'll say a, a high-end broadsheet paper. Um, and the Post was a tabloid, you know, and uh, not a group in the tabloid. So to me, I mean, there was certainly nothing at all uh, wrong with working in a tabloid. But I do think that there are some people, friends. People who you know just would 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 volunteer their opinions. Who thought it would be an interesting transition for a guy to go from more of a traditional newspaper to a, to a tabloid. But I'll tell you this: uh, I I took to the change. You know, the, the biggest change I had to make was that when I was at the Star Ledger, occasionally I'd be writing uh, as much as eleven or twelve hundred words for my columns. That's that's a lot of that's a lot of writing, especially if you got to write multiple editions. You know, at the Post or, you know, officially. Originally, I, I had to cut that in half because at first there were 600-word limits, which is more like 700 words now. But it's still, you know, you're still talking about a, a fairly large amount of writing that used to go in my columns isn't there anymore. 
And it made me a better writer because it made me have to get to points quicker. It made me have to, you know, not back into into columns. It made me have to, you know, you know the way that uh, Greg Gallimard, here's my boss, you know, used to put it. He said, he said, you know, write for the guy, you know, who's on a five-minute subway ride. He doesn't have time. He's either going to read you or you read somebody else. So get to the point. And that's something that I've kept with me my entire career at the Post, and that's going on almost 13 and a half years now. Uh, and that's what I try and do, you know. And, and it's funny there. Sometimes I, I know I revert to old habits. In fact, I can say the column I wrote yesterday, where you know I, 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 I submitted one column, I went back and read it, and I said, no, I got to, I got to rewrite this, you know, because it just, it, 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 the point wasn't made as quick as it had to be made, and you know, I just, I just turned it upside down. And uh, there's, you know, it, 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 it's kind of an interesting word, I guess, but there really is a discipline involved in working successfully for tabloids because you do have to grab an attention span. You have to grab the reader by the collar and not let go until he's done reading you. And uh, that's an acquired skill, but it's one, once you get it, it's a real, it's a real handy thing to have, especially on deadline. Uh, I, as much as anyone appreciate like a good long form article, but I think, you know, I, I think it really works well for you and anyone else going forward with just the way media has changed and people's attention spans have just decreased drastically that, I mean, the way the the amount you write and what has become sort of you know the the status quo, I guess, of newspapers of that ilk, uh, and it fits perfectly. So I, I think the job is is well done. Um, staying in the journalistic realm, uh, this one's layered with all sorts of things, so you can uh, have at it here. An article written by Sean King of the Daily News has caused some controversy regarding Peyton Manning's sexual assault claims of the past. Uh, we've heard about this the, this story for for a good ten years, fifteen years or so. But I'll ask this first: If this wasn't about a beloved player like Peyton Manning, would this have been making the rounds in the big media outlets a long time ago? I think what you have to remember is what is what the world was like uh, when these allegations were first brought to light. There was no Twitter. There was no social media at all. Uh, the news cycle was not a 24-7 constant news cycle. It was a more traditional, you know, today's news, tomorrow, and all that kind of stuff. Um, I, I think if this would have happened a year ago, I think I, I think the media storm would have been incredible to perceive. I don't think it has anything to do with Peyton Manning myself. I really don't. I don't. What do you, what do you think it has to do with? Maybe I'm naive. I mean, I think I, I, I think it was it was a story that was dealt with at the time the way that the that the that, 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 that media cycles came and went, uh, and, and I just think that because it happened, you know, he's 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 fairly he's had a fairly exemplary public life in the years since then. I think that it just was kind of forgotten. I, I have no problem with it being recycled now. I have no problem. I think that one of the contexts that's been used that now is to is to kind of refute the notion of you know why is everybody picking on Cam Newton when look what this guy has in his past. I think that's a fair argument to make. Um, was he ever held to, to, to the kind of public account that, 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 that he should have been, or that he would have been had the incident happened 15 years later? Probably not. Um, but certainly he's not the only one. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, God help Babe Ruth if there was Twitter in 1926, and Mickey Mantle if there was Facebook in 1952. Um, and that's just, the, that's just the way things are. It's the way of the world now. Uh, I think athletes certainly know uh, that they have to be on their best behavior whenever they leave their, their rooms now. Certainly Peyton Manning is, is savvy enough to where I think a Peyton Manning who's 19 or 20 years old in 2016 would have enough sense to not get himself embroiled in something like that. Right. Uh, but, uh, you know, it's only a fair game. And, look, you know, Peyton Manning's a guy who's come into our living room 
constantly for 15 years. So it's certainly fair game to know who this pitchman is, who this quarterback is, who this guy that you know a lot of people you know have allowed their kids to idolize is. And I think that you know the only way you have a full accounting of that is when you get a full picture. So I think it's I don't have any problem for people to have discussed this now, and I think it's uh, it's uh, it, 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 it's fair game. I mean, I wasn't surprised by it because I knew about the incident. I've never bought into the idea that Peyton Manning is you know a thirteenth apostle <laughs> or anything of that ilk. And to his credit, I don't think that, to be fair. I don't think Peyton Manning has ever asked to be judged that way. I mean, that now, now you're necessarily going to have people think certain ways about you when you're everywhere the way he is, the way Michael Jordan was in his heyday, you know, because he endorses every other product on TV. But, you know, it's, 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 uh, he, never, he never asked to be judged as any kind of messiah. He just asked to be judged as a football player. And, you know, from that context, I think it, 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 it's, it makes for an interesting conversation now, that's for sure. Yeah, you you mentioned Twitter and just going back throughout history and putting certain, you know, characters in there. I mean, today, February 17th, we're recording this. It's the birthday of Michael Jordan and Jim Brown. I mean, if there was Twitter around there, there'd probably be nonstop pictures of Jordan in a casino. And we all know Jim's Jim Brown has had some issues in the past, too. I wonder if, you know, if those had happened, like you said, last year, uh, if he'd be revered in the same way that we do whenever we see him on the television screen during a football game. Uh, yes, yeah, of course, especially with Jordan, because, I mean, you know, Jim Brown, you do tend to think of him being kind of in a black and white world uh, because it was, you know, his heyday was in the 50s and 60s. I don't mean skin color, I mean just the tone of the newsreel. But you know Michael Jordan, you know that, that you know he, that, that, that gambling incident took place 23 years ago. That's not yesterday, but it's also not 1923. Uh, and you know if that would have happened, you know 15 years later, uh, you're right. There have been people who would have taken you know taken, taken camera phone shots of him, uh, thousands and thousands of them if he had laid foot in the casino that day, and that would have become a story that that would have had traction for weeks. Oh, it would. Oh man, I could just imagine all the photoshops and everything. I mean, it'd be everywhere, all over. Um. Let's real quick. Football is over, and in New York, you have two teams sort of sort of trending, maybe not trending, but going in different directions to a certain extent. Um, both Giants and Jets, obviously. The draft's a little over two months away. Are there any dire needs you see each team having going forward in the draft? Well, for the Giants, their defense is so porous that to me, you can't draft enough young players uh, with the idea of of, of, of having them. Uh, be useful for you as soon as possible. Um, the Jets, you know, they 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 uh, they they have certainly uh, some some interesting defensive pieces in place already. Assuming they resign Snacks, I mean they they franchise Wilkerson. Uh, they could really use uh, you know and probably another playmaker. Um, I would say it'd be wonderful if they were able to to, to to find another quarterback who intrigues them, but I don't know that guy's in the draft this year. Uh, but, uh, you know, I think you're probably going to have uh, Fitzpatrick back next year, and, and, and uh, you know, certainly if he can replicate what he did with the guys he had in his side this year, but it's never a bad thing, uh, especially for the Jets, to be able to add a couple more playmakers. But for the Giants, I think the, the obvious pressing need is to, is to strengthen the defense, which has just been porous for years now. Yeah, that that defense last year was historically bad. It was it was rough watching. But enough of football. It's 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 over. It's it's too cold this weekend. I want to think about warm things. So the past few days, I mean, New England tundra baseball has been on my mind nonstop. So let let's let me ask you first. What was Henry Mejia thinking? Well, I don't think he was thinking clearly. Uh, <laughs> I think that 
it's it, it, it was it was hard not to shake your head when he was spending the second time last year. Yeah. Uh, because why would you possibly put yourself in a situation like that? Put your livelihood in, in jeopardy. And then you get to uh, you get the third chance, or he's going to get a third chance this year. And before the suspension is even over, uh, he's out of baseball now, probably for good. Um, I can't imagine another team is going to take a, 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 any kind of substantial risk on him because he's proven he's not worth it. it it's it's sad. I mean, look, I mean, you, you, you can certainly respond with anger or frustration. You can you know you, you can talk about you know just how stupid it was for him to do what he did, and you'd be right. But you know. I think we're all human beings also, and you get to think about this guy who's you know, not even close to age 30 yet, and all the, you know, all the money he was going to make, all the success he was, he was geared to have, and he just threw it all away. And, you know, it's, it's, it, it, to, to, to me, I, I can't help but not feel sad about that. In the same way, you know, look, I was probably on an island by myself back in the day when, you know, Steve Howe was, was thrown out of baseball Absolutely. 20 times, 8 times. Um, because, you know, I think we've all... It's 2016. I think a lot of us, almost all of us, have had uh, drug abuse you know, touch our lives either directly with people we know, or friends of friends, or relatives, or whatnot. And to see what happened uh, with, with Steve Howard was enough to make me cry back in the day. Um, didn't have any personal affection for the man, but to see what he was throwing away. And I kind of feel the same way with Henry Mejia. You know, it's a different, it's a different drug. It's a different kind of scandal, of course. But it's uh, it's the same it's the same end result and. Uh, it's very, very sad. Yeah, it's sad, and it's it's almost hard to fathom the fact that he got these three suspensions so quickly as well. This wasn't a long, drawn-out process you sometimes see with either drugs or steroids or the gaps in between. This this was this was three times in in you know a season and a half or so, not even that. Um, but let, let's let's look at the team on the field there for the Mets. You wrote recently that uh, the future for the Mets include, includes Joanna Cespedes, and that is a good thing, a great thing. So. Can this present team right now, they were in the World Series last year, but can this present team right now make another run at the World Series, or is Sandy Alderson going to have to add some pieces throughout the season? Well, I think the answer to both is yes. I do think that they can make a run. I do think that, look, I mean, the team that we see now or the team we envision for opening day is going to be a lot different on May 1st and July 1st and August 1st. It just is. That's the nature of baseball season. Guys get hurt. Guys go into slumps. Guys aren't what you expect them to be, but... The overall makeup of the Mets, I think, is certainly, you know, from this time last year, is, is substantially better. Um, and not just because of Cespedes, but, you know, I think Neil Walker is an upgrade. Uh, I, I like signing Cabrera. I think he's going to be a great addition to that clubhouse. Um, and, and, and so, to me, I think they have a tremendous opportunity to get back to the World Series. But, you know, I always go back. One of my favorite anecdotes in sports, uh, I was outside the Jets locker room in January of 99, uh, after they lost the Broncos in the AFC title game. And it was me and a couple of writers and Bill Parcells. And Parcells looked like death warmed over. And he answered our questions. And the thing that really struck me and strikes me every time I think about a team having to go back on a journey is, you know, he, he said what really exhausts me is thinking about all the things we have to do just to get to right back here. You know, minicamp and the draft and, you know, the first you know, two days and, the first couple of weeks of the regular season, and can guys stay healthy, and can you get a home game in the playoffs? And you start thinking about all the things that have to happen just to get back to where we were three hours ago. And it just, it, it just it makes you want to crawl into a ball and fall asleep. And I think about that for a lot of teams that get as far as the Mets did. Uh, you know, the Royals had the same had the same challenge faced right. a year ago, and they did it. You know, you don't often see that, at least not in baseball, I don't think. 
Um, you know, especially in, in, in the modern game where there's just so much transition from year to year. And to me, that's what makes what the Royals did all the more uh, remarkable, is that they came within 90 feet of, this, uh, of winning the World Series in 2014 and actually finished the job in 2015. You know, you know, good for them for doing that. And, I mean, you just think about all the things that have to happen to the Mets. They have to stay healthy. You know, their pitchers, I mean, every time a pitcher goes out, you know, Dan Worthen and a, and a million fans are going to be, well, I hope, did you look okay? I hope he responds well tomorrow. That's just the nature of young pitchers. You know, is David Wright going to be healthy? Is this guy going to be healthy? Are they going to get the right players? Will, will the Nationals start out 40 and 15 this year? Uh, will the Cubs start out, you know, 50 and 15 this year? Will there be, you know, will it be obvious on July 1st you're playing for the wild? I mean, there's so many things that 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 that, 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 that have yet to transpire and will transpire between now and September 1st, let alone October 1st, let alone November 1st. Uh, so yeah, certainly they, certainly it could happen, but man, it's going to be it's going to be a really interesting ride because nothing is as easy as or nothing is as to say as difficult as, as getting to the finish line. Only one team gets to do it, and the next guy as close as you can get without doing it, but they left pretty empty. And uh, they, they they kind of saw firsthand, you know, what the chasm is between the the team that almost wins and the team that does. Cliche and corny, but you can't predict baseball. Um... On the other side of town, the Yankees made no free agency moves, but acquired Starlin Castro and Aroldis Chapman via trade. I mean, I've seen all sorts of different predictions from, uh, quote-unquote, experts. How do you see the Bombers shaping up this year? Broad question, I know. but I think they'll be fine. I do. I mean, they're not by fine. Do I think they're going to win a World Series? No. Do I think they're going to lock to the playoffs? No. But see, I don't, you know, I, I probably judge Yankee seasons differently than Yankee fans do, or some, at least Yankee fans of a certain generation who were raised to believe it was the Yankees' birthright to be in the playoffs every year. I thought they had a terrific year last year, even though it ended badly, even though they lost the playoffs to the Astros, even though they didn't play well in September. I thought that was a, I thought 87 wins, you know, they played way above, above themselves, given their age, given their health, given the way the pitching staff kind of broke down a little bit. Um, yeah, I liken this year in a lot of ways to 1993 for the Yankees, you know, where we're, they were kind of on the precipice of, 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 of making a move. And I think that's where they are right now. You know, ironically, in 93, they were chasing the Blue Jays as they will again this year. Right. And they fell short, as I think they will again this year. Uh-huh. But there are things in place. And for the Yankees, you know, there are contracts coming off the books in the next couple of years and intriguing players that are coming on the market that you would think they would at least have a fighting chance to acquire. And they said, and they have a farm system for the first time in years. And that's also something that you have to look forward to. So, look, I, I, I don't think they're going to fall off the cliff. You know, Yankee fans, older Yankee fans always seem to live with the fear of 1965 or 1982 when, when uh, you know, after you know, years of dominance, they kind of fell off a cliff for a couple of years. I don't, think, I don't think that's going to happen. They have too good a team to, you know, win 75 games. But I think they could win 85 games again this year, finish a strong second or third in the East. And there will be some who, 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 who won't appreciate that as a good year, but I think that would be a fine year and a building block for what's coming ahead. Yeah, not to insert myself into it, but I will. Um, I'm in my 30s, so I'm sort of in the middle of that whole uh, where I understand things can be bad and the other side is, uh, you know, I expect everything every year I'm going to bitch and moan. Uh, and, you know, I thought last year they overachieved, even though they made it into a playoff game. But I, I see the same thing happening this year. That, Like you said, the team, there's too many names on that team for them to be bad, bad. Uh, you wrote about the epic rivalry between the Yankees and Red Sox in your book, Emperors and Idiots. First off, what made you want to get involved in a subject that's been chronicled so many times? And second, what was one thing you learned researching this book that most fans would probably never know? 
Well, you know, it, it, it's funny. At the time that I decided to do the book, it was kind of the, the, the very beginning of the, of the renaissance of of the Yankees-Red Sox rivalry. I mean, I, I agreed to do it uh, literally in the hours after Aaron Boone's home run in 2003. And obviously the Yankees and the Red Sox have been rivals since, you know, since the beginning of time. But uh, that was really the first, the, the, the beginning of, uh, of what I, even I will admit will become a rivalry that grew very tired after about 10 years of constant Red Sox-Yankees, Yankees-Red Sox, Red Sox-Yankees. Um, and, so, and at the time, I thought I was writing a book about, you know, how the Yankees never lose the Red Sox, which, you know, of course, turned around on me uh, a year later when, 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 when the Red Sox had their miracle comeback. But, you know, the, 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 the story I always take away from that book that I, the, the, that I loved, especially if you know who George Steinbrenner was and what he was like, uh, it was after the 2004 comeback was complete, and there were about 5,000 Red Sox fans who just wouldn't leave Yankee Stadium, and the Red Sox kept coming out and dousing the champagne and coming back out with more champagne. And, you know, it was pretty hour after the game, and, and, and Yankee employees were getting a little annoyed by this. And they figured that it was annoying them. It was certainly annoying the, you know, the boss. And so uh, a couple of them went to visit him in his office. You know, he was, he was not happy, but, uh, you know, they said, you know, boss, we got, we, we, we got to turn the lights on these guys. They're, 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 they're going to stay here all night. And Steinbrenner's everlasting credit. He told them, you know what, they've earned this. It's been a thousand years for them. Let them stay as long as they want. And I thought that that was, you know, certainly yeah. uncharacteristic of what we know about George Steinbrenner. Uh, but really, I mean, you know, I, I think tells you that even George Steinbrenner, who didn't keep a lot of things in perspective professionally in his career, at least, at least not, you know, in terms of the Yankees, uh, was able to understand that this was something remarkable and historic that he was viewing. And even though he hated the fact that his Yankees were the, the foil in the story, uh, he was able to recognize how important it was to, to both the Red Sox and their fans. That's great. I've never heard that before. You, you uh, you, you talked about the rivalry and how it's gotten a little tired. Um, in your opinion, where does the where's the rivalry stand today in 2016? Uh, look, I think for the Yankee, uh, I think for the for the, for the hardest core Yankee fans, hardest core Red Sox fans, uh, it remains you know it remains intense because there's a there's a familiarity to it, and there's you know there there there's there's still some hard feelings when you know when. When, 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 when fans get together. And I think that's the thing that you have to remember is that the players do come and go. And while, you know, Thurman Munson and Carlton Fisk, you know, fight each other in 1973, and, you know, uh, Craig Nettles takes a, takes a swing at, at, uh, at the spaceman, you know, a couple of years later, and he goes on and on, uh, you know, they, these guys become teammates later on. You know, fans don't team up. They're, 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 for fans, this stuff is forever. So I do think that, that, that Yankees fans and Red Sox fans do have a, you know, unique uh, perspective of each other. I'll put it that way. Um, I think the rest of baseball has enjoyed the fact that uh, that there hasn't been a lot of big Red Sox Yankees games, because I do think there was a, that there was a fatigue factor for the Red Sox and the Yankees. Uh, maybe not right away, but certainly by the time the Red Sox uh, won again in 2007, and it just it just became a you know, okay, we get it. These are these are, these are long rivals. We get it. Let's move on to Army Navy or the Lakers, the Celtics. <laughs> um, but uh, but I do think that the fans themselves still care a great deal, and it matters to Yankees fans to beat Red Sox. It matters to Red Sox fans to beat the Yankees. So does David Ortiz get a standing ovation later this year when he plays his last game at Yankee Stadium? I think they will. I, I think it's hard for really? Yankee fans to to kind of put their their arms around it. But look, I mean, if you would have asked me. Three years ago, will Derek Jeter ever get a standing ovation at Fenway Park? I would have laughed at you. And yet, you know, his, his final game was played at Fenway Park, and and it was uh, it, it was everything that you would expect a storybook ending and a storybook career to be. Um, 
I know, I know there's hard, maybe some harder feelings for Ortiz, but, you know, like, I mean, I, I think we have to, we, we, we have to wait. I mean, if, if it's, if it's first place against second place when that, when, when that, that happens, uh, there's no standing ovation. <laughs> if it's two teams playing at the string, I do think that, that, uh, the fans will acknowledge, um, maybe not long, maybe not loud, but I think they will acknowledge, uh, a guy who was a who was a great competitor who seemed to save his best work for for when he played the Yankees. Interesting. We'll have to wait and see. Um, I want to thank Mike Vaccaro, the New York Post, for coming on the Red Ticket Blues podcast. But I have before you go to play us out, I have three quick questions for you. You ready? Sure, let's do it. What will Tom Coughlin's next job be? Grandfather. I do think I, I actually think he's he's after good. I can't imagine he's going to want to crank it up again. Uh, for the kind of losing operation that's going to have a vacancy that would want him to, 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 to come aboard. And I, I just don't see, some people talk about him going to college, I can't see that because the idea of him going on the road recruiting now, um, and people say, well, he recruits himself, it doesn't work that way. No, it works no. that way, there'd be a lot of other stories. I, I, I think he's, I think he's, a, he's a full-time grandfather now, and I think he'll be fine with that. I've heard a lot on sports radio saying that they'd be going to college. I, I, I agree, I cannot see that. Um, what, sports or non-sports, what is the best book you have ever read? Wow, you know, it's, it's funny. I just actually told somebody this. It's called, uh, um, it's, it, 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 it was a book about the, the Martin Luther King assassination, Hellhound on His Trail. Uh, it, 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 half the book is about James R. Ray stalking Martin Luther King, and the second half is about the FBI stalking James R. Ray. It's, hmm. it's a book that reads like a thriller, and if, if you didn't know it was all true, you would still like the book because of how well it was written. Hampton Sides wrote it. Uh, I can't. I can't possibly recommend it highly enough. It's a great. It's, it's a great, great book. I have to definitely put that on the top of my list. And finally, will we see the DH in the National League in the next five years? I think so, uh, and I say that reluctantly because I, I prefer National League baseball. But I think that for one thing, it's amazing that it hasn't become a point of the labor, uh, the collective bargaining agreement yet. Uh, I think it will soon. Uh, as an extra job, extra, extra, you know, fourteen jobs, fifteen jobs for people. Um, and I just think that uh, I think that the DH has become such a part, an overwhelming part of baseball outside of the National League that I think it's just inevitable. And plus, look, I mean, I'm not one of these guys who, who needs comic relief and to see Bart Toler Cologne, you know, fly out four pitches a day. Uh, I, 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 I'm, I don't like the idea of a DH, but I also have grown a little less enamored uh, with the idea of an automatic out of the lineup every day in the National League, too. I tend to agree with you. Um... He's a lead sports columnist for the New York Post. You can follow him on Twitter at MikeVACC. Mike Vaccaro, thank you very much for being on the Red Ticket Blues podcast. Good talking to you, Brian. Thanks for having me on. There he is. That is Mike Vaccaro of the New York Post. I want to personally thank him for coming on. Lots of great insight and analysis. Um, Hope you all enjoyed the podcast. Remember... uh, you Amazon customers, just go to redticketblues.com, go to the Be About Me page, click on the ad, and anytime you order something, anytime you order something, guess what? I just get a little bit of it. It doesn't cost you anything, so bookmark it. I, I know you're all ordering from Amazon. I see all the boxes in my neighbor's garbage cans all the time, and some of you might be saying, well, Brian, why don't you ask your neighbors? Well, I tried that. I said, can you do this? I explained the situation. They said, who are you? Uh, are you the person that always sneers at me when you pull out of the driveway in the morning? And I said, yes. And then they closed the door. So that's why I'm coming to you. Uh, so just go ahead and do that bookmark it every time. Listen, we're partners, right? Right. Kind of maybe. Um, remember you can always listen to the show on iTunes, tune in radio, Stitcher, YouTube, and 
like the show on Facebook, and if you haven't already, leave a review on your podcasting venue, five-star rating, and subscribe so you never miss an episode. With all that being said, I'm out of here.